Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this is another one of our live Q&A sessions we host via our YouTube channel. And this time we had Vincent Jello Aiello on as he chats about flying the F-18 and his podcast, The Fighter Pilot Podcast. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. Well, hello, everybody. Again, Vincent Aiello, glad to be back on Aircrew Interview. And I've been here before. And if you want to come find our website, it's fighterpilotpodcast.com. And we have a lot of initiatives going in 2019. And we'll be glad to invite you over there. But don't leave Mike here. He's got a good thing going. So looks like (laughs) the first question is from John Ellis. He asks, what do you think of the F-35? Question mark. Combination of the best parts of the F-18 and F-16? No, John, I think it's better than the F-18 and the F-16. In fact, funny you should mention it, in three days' time, we will release an interview on our next episode that is with a pilot who has flown the F-15, the F-16, and the F-35, and we're titling that episode Fourth Generation versus Fifth Generation and what the difference is between those two classes of fighters, if you will. And the F-35 blows the others away from the point of view of being a good long-range interceptor and fusing all the information that it has available to it. It might arguably not be quite as good of a dogfighter as the F-18, but hopefully if it does its job correctly, it won't need to dogfight and it can take care of all that before it gets into the visual arena. I know we've said that before in the Vietnam era, but I think the F-35 is a gigantic step up and I think it's leaps and bounds ahead of where the F-18 and the F-16 were. You have to imagine that those were seventies technology originally, which has been modified in the decades since, but now F-35 is pretty much cutting edge. So uh, yep. Good question, John. When did you start flying? I flew maybe once or twice as a young child in friends' airplanes if I was able to work out a ride. But I actually did not start really flying until I began flight school in the fall of 1993. I was 23 years old, and the Navy taught me everything I needed to know. And I've been pretty much flying ever since with a couple years that I did take off between 2000, what was it, 2000. 10 2013-ish. Douglas Wheeler. Uh, let's see. Douglas asks, big fan of the podcast. Just wondering if you ever fancy trying a British aircraft and why? Uh, sure, I'd love to. Uh, that opportunity just never was available when I was in the military, Douglas. And now that I'm out, I don't know how I would have such an opportunity, but if it came along, sure, I'd love to. Uh, it'd be great. But I, I'm civilian now, so... I don't know how that would come about. Paul Mooney, what would you say was the most challenging part of your training slash flying? Paul, for me, it was learning how to be a good enough one versus one instructor, 1v1 at Top Gun, not only flying it, but teaching it. I had a very difficult time getting through the flying syllabus, partly was due to the fact that we only had opportunities to do the instructor under training flights at certain times. And there were sometimes gaps in between. And so if there was a long enough gap, for whatever reason, just aircraft availability, then 
I would lose the proficiency I'd built up. And then once we got into it again, then I'd build it back up. And then maybe it was just close enough, not quite. And then I would have to take a break again. So it was just this weird cycle. I won't bore you with all the details, but it took me a little longer than normal to get through that phase of training because when you are a Top Gun instructor, excuse me, they expect you to be the absolute expert at whatever it is you're teaching. There can be no mistakes, no flaws. If you do make a mistake later after you are an actual instructor, then they expect you to understand it, be able to teach to it and show why the mistake occurred and what you can do better next time, just like you should do for your students. So for me, that was one. At times, carrier landings were also difficult, but that's that's the uh, that's the answer that came to mind when you asked, Paul. Good question. Sorry, if I'm quiet for a moment, I'm trying to figure out where I left off because sometimes this jumps. Uh, uh, let's see, Grayo1F asked, did I get my DCS flight set up yet? Uh, no, I did not. I don't really have room in my house or my life or my wallet for this right now. So I, <laughs> I appreciate that those of you who enjoy DCS are passionate about it. Uh, it's something that for me doesn't quite hold the allure perhaps that it does for you because having done it for real, I not sure what I would do in DCS other than engage with all you people and enjoy that. And so, no, I, I have not yet set it up for those reasons. Sorry to say. Yeah, sorry. Somebody says they were on the other stream waiting for it to start. We had a slow start. I don't know if Mike explained that, but we had some technical difficulties, which always seems to happen uh, when I'm a guest here. Mike, don't um, – sorry. It must be me. I'm sure you do it fine with everybody else. All right. Have I ever crashed on a carrier landing or had issues on a carrier uh, no, Space Dreams. I never crashed, thankfully. I did have issues. There was one particular night I had difficulty landing, not because of the ship or the sea conditions, but because of my own inability. I was relatively new at the time. I want to say I boltered about three times, and then I went up to aerial refuel, and when I came back down, I subconsciously said, okay, I don't want to bolter anymore. I better go lower. And of course, at the carrier low is not good. So I was waved off twice and sent home for the night. Uh, but I came back out after that and did fine. So yes, that, that was the thankfully extent of my problems landing. How long did it take to be a natural at flying the ball? Asks 409 Napalm. I can't answer that because it hasn't happened yet. And because I'm no longer flying the ball, 409 Napalm, I would have to say infinity. I was never a natural at it. To be fair, in the daytime, it got a little easier, but I was not consistently what they call top 10 ball flyer or top hook or anything like that. I had to work very hard at it, and it never came naturally for me. Romper 86, I was in Picola one year later. Well, sorry to miss you. I need to get back over there and uh, meet a few folks to do some more interviews, frankly. John Ellis asks, did I use the joint helmet mounted queuing system with a FLIR pod in the F-18 or F-16? No, John, I personally never used the joint helmet anyway, but at Top Gun, where we fly the F-16 in the Navy, we did not use the joint helmet because we only used the F-16 for adversary flying, and it was never adapted to the older F-16As and Bs. 
there was a time I was becoming, I was being fit, I should say, for the visor. That's always the hard part is they have to fit it around your face. And I forget what happened. Uh, at one point, something slowed us down, or maybe there was a timeout, if you will, with uh, doing the new helmets. And for whatever reason, I never continued it. And by then, it was so late in my career, I just never ended up flying with it. So I can't speak knowledgeably to that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul Barrett, did you get the chance to go up against the F-22 at Top Gun? Not at Top Gun, Paul, but I did have a chance to fight it at an operation or exercise Northern Edge in Alaska one time. And it was an amazing aircraft. We did not do dedicated 1v1, but I, as an adversary, arrived at a merge with an F-22. And from my experience, having fought other Navy aircraft and non-F-22 Air Force aircraft, for where I arrived with an offensive position, I should have been able to maintain that position. But the next thing I know, we had a neutral merge, and he went flying by me. And to this day, I can't figure out how he did that. I know they have thrust vectoring and everything else. and I've never seen them live in an air show either. So uh, I'm, I'm still a little confused on how that happened. But a very impressive aircraft. And again, a plug for our upcoming episode. We will talk a bit about the F-22 in comparison to the F-35 on our next Fighter Pilot Podcast episode coming out on the 12th. From Maverick, do you consider being a fighter pilot more of a system operator kind of a job or flying? That's a great question, Maverick. When I came in, and it was still the end of the era, if you will, for what I like to call the big chest-thumping, manly, knuckle-dragging fighter pilots, there was more of just the pure flying and the bravado, and a lot of what you would think of from people in the 70s and 80s, uh, tapering off in the early 90s. And now, if you ask me, the demographic of fighter pilots is changing. I think of them as more calculated, less boisterous, more professional, uh, but to be fair, maybe less fun having. But of course, society has changed also. So you can't really have the type of shenanigans they used to have back then anyway. But it's definitely a different world and a different Navy. And so in my experience, the young fighter pilots who came along after my generation were more calculating, thoughtful, more operators, and arguably a little more professional, and maybe even, I say, a little more effective. But again, that's the generation that they represent. So. Um, yeah. All right. So someone here, Bad Badik, Badik says, currently a patron. Thank you very much. That is how we keep the show going. We do have over 100 patrons on our Patreon page. Uh, do you know where the Rhino nickname came from? Yes. Uh, from what I've been told, I forget who told me this, but they were trying to think of a name to use on the ball at the ship because you don't want to say super hornet ball because if all the LSOs hear is super or is if they don't hear the super, if all they hear is the hornet, then they could confuse it with the regular hornet, which we'll call hornet ball. They needed something different and I can't do it justice, but apparently one of the guys went home, one of the landing signal officers at the fleet readiness squadron. And he came back the next day and he says, I got it. We'll call it the rhino. And the commanding officer or somebody said, why are we going to call it the Rhino? 
And he said, because it's big, ugly, gray, and its legs rub together or something like that. And so it is, if you look at an Hornet and a Super Hornet next to each other from the backside, the Super Hornet does look like it's carrying a little more weight uh, in the hind quarters. And so that apparently that answer is stuck. And so that is what they decided to call the Super Hornet around the boat. And it's a nickname for it at all times. We, we say, hey, it's the Rhino. In the movie Clear and Present Danger, says Baddock, uh, the call sign of the paper bomb Hornet. Oh, yeah, easy Rhino. Um, yeah, I don't know where that came from. So he's asking about Clear and Present Danger when, um, what, what was the guy's name? The, but Jack, no, it wasn't Jack. It was... Anyway, the character on the ground who's acting as the forward air controller, he's talking to the F-18 Hornet from VFA-125, and it is um, William Defoe. That's the name I'm trying to come up with. He, he He's using his call sign, Easy Rhino, and that's, yeah, that's arbitrary. I don't think that has anything to do with the Super Hornet being called a Rhino. And even though you didn't ask it, Baddock, I don't know anything about cellulose-encased bombs. Never heard of any in my career. Okay, so uh, comment on my back-to-back behind-the-scenes. I assume he means on landing on the boat. Thank you. Uh, so Tim Oya or Oja asks, do you think operating modern fighters would be more effective if there was a second crew member? Well, Tim, it, I guess it doesn't really matter what I think, but since you're asking me, I will tell you. And I'm going to cop out and say it depends because I never flew the F-35 or the F-22. But the fact that they've only built each of those aircraft single seat tells you something. I was single seat most of my career. Towards the end, I did have a chance to fly with many tactical Top Gun graduate whizzos, and they were very effective. So I wasn't a convert. I didn't wish I'd gone back and flown two seat the whole time. And if I were to go to combat towards the end of my career, I'm not prepared to say I would have wanted or asked to go with a two seat. But that takes nothing away from them. They're very effective. And for me, it was just a question of experience and habit pattern. And I was used to doing things mostly by myself. But the few times I did fly with Top Gun graduate Wizzos, they were very effective. And I understand that certain missions, particularly Ford Air Controller Airborne, which I never did. But for that mission, it's great to have someone else, as it is for a lot of others. But that's that's a sticky one. I, I, I really can't answer that. But again, most fifth generation fighters, at least in the US, are single seats. So that tells you where the mindset is going. Yeah, someone said John Clark. That was William Defoe's character. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Yes, uh, John Ellis points out if they rig the cable wrong, it's really a bad thing. You can damage the aircraft if you rig it for a Hornet and you land a Super Hornet or vice versa. And that's absolutely true. That's why there are so many precautions in place to make sure that doesn't happen. Just looking at questions here. Uh, Ever within visual range fought with A-10s? I've heard they can surprise fast movers. No, Terry Boyer, I never actually did have a chance to do that. I'm sure they could. They were built to be low and slow. And in a dogfight, being slow can be very helpful. And so, unfortunately, I never had that opportunity, but I appreciate the question. Okay, I'm not going to try to pronounce this next one. Uh, He's from Poland. He says, thank you for your time, and you're welcome. Greetings from San Diego where it's 70 degrees and sunny out in the middle of January. 
What are the pros and cons of being an ATP or airline transport pilot, airline pilot? Joe D777 asks. Well, the pros, this falls a little out of the context, so I'll make this quick. The pros are that they pay and pay relatively well and that you have free travel for your family. The cons are that the quality of the flying is pretty low. If you used to fly fighters, the people in the back don't really appreciate when you start doing heavy turns and pulling G's and all that, which I don't do. Don't worry. And so most pilots that I know of who fly airlines who also need to get their fix, well, they go fly biplanes or some other fun plane on the weekend. Uh, I don't do that partly because I don't have the money to do it, but also partly because I'm pretty much satisfied. That being said, I might start doing some civilian flying because my 15-year-old son, who wants to figure out a way to survive living in Hawaii as a surfer, I told him he should fly for Hawaiian Airlines. So he raised his eyebrows at that and thinks he wants to start taking flying lessons. So we'll see where that goes. Paul Barrett says, love the podcast we did with our wives. That's me and my co-host, Sunshine. Lucky guys to have lovely ladies at your sides. Totally true, Paul. We really enjoyed that one. And I thought they offered really good advice. In fact, I am considering doing an encore episode with my sons. I think I would open it with my 11-year-old, probably just making silly sounds with a microphone in his hand, which is about the most I can expect. And then maybe I'll get my 15 and 18-year-olds to talk about what the home front was like like in their lives as military kids. So we might we might revisit the home front there. Thanks for that, Paul. Have you ever had an engine failure? You know, Space Dreams, this came up recently and I'm embarrassed to admit, I don't remember. Um, I know I there's one time I can remember I was doing a post-maintenance check flight and I shut off an engine. We used to do that in the F-18. They don't do it anymore, but I shut it off in flight and it wouldn't restart. So that's kind of like a failure, but thankfully I was in uh, Fallon, Nevada. And so I didn't have to land on the carrier, but I did have an engine uh, stall on me one time, but I think it was okay at idle. And I don't think otherwise I've had an engine failure. And the fact that I don't remember if I did means it did not end dramatically or else I'm sure I would have a more pointed memory of it or poignant maybe. So I, I'll have to go back and see in my logbooks if I made comment to that, but I don't recall having an actual engine failure at an inopportune time. Tim Sears asks, is there going to be a time when the UAV platforms on manned aerial vehicles will reduce or eliminate fighter pilots? Some plans are exceeding uh, planes. I assume you mean are exceeding the physiological capabilities of pilots. Uh, yes, Tim, we will again discuss this very briefly on this upcoming episode of the fighter pilot podcast. I, theoretically someday in my lifetime. no, in yours, I don't know how old you are, but if you're listening to this, you're probably at least 15. Probably not. It's hard to say. Again, I've used the example on a podcast before that when you look back at the mid-80s, if you were around and you watched the um, Back to the Future movies, that they showed about this time frame as the future, quote unquote, in the 80s. And for what they thought we would be, we're nowhere close to that. So I, I don't know. We don't have flying cars. We don't have a lot of different things that maybe we should have by now. So I don't know how long it will take for UAVs to replace manned aircraft, but I think at some point it's coming probably. 
Uh, Badjik wants to know if Sunshine is as handsome in real life as he is on Facebook Live. He's a certainly a good-looking guy, and I don't mind saying that because I'm confident in my own sexuality. And so, yeah, he's a good-looking dude. And next time, Mike, as a matter of fact, I mentioned to him, Mike, uh, that you invited me to do this. And I said, you should do it sometime. And he said he'd be willing. So the viewer can decide for themselves who's better looking. I've got my wife. I'm happy. So I'm confident in how I look. So no awesome. contest. Yeah, well, we need to get sunshine and our wish. So that would be absolutely brilliant, Vincent. Yeah, yeah. so give him a note and say yes. We'll for it. Northern Norway. If so, ex- anything, experience of real cold weather flying. Uh, I did fly north of the Arctic Circle on that same exercise I mentioned when I was in Northern Edge in uh, Alaska. And we had to wear some cold weather clothes in case we went down. But because it was an exercise, they had four detached helicopters in different places. And the idea was they would be able to rescue us quickly if we had ejected. So never operated in Norway, Corpen, and never had to do really any other super cold weather stuff. Okay, so my friend from Poland is explaining the name that he uses, and it says it stands for Our and Your Freedom. It was the motto from Polish Air Force fighting in the Western Front in World War II. Outstanding. Thank you for that. Miko, who I see on my show from time to time, have you ever worked with pilots from other F-18 user countries, Canada, Australia, Kuwait, Finland, etc.? Yes, Miko, we did operate with the Canadians a bit and the Australians. Um, I know some of my peers flew or instructed with the Kuwaitis. I never did, but uh, no, I don't know any Finnish pilots either. So no, not as much as I wished I had, but as I understand it, or the Swiss, uh, but as I understand, they're all very good pilots. Uh, So Maverick asks, and I just answered this earlier, do I do any flying just for fun, small planes, aerobatics? No, sorry to say I really don't. I like to fly fish. That's my thing right now. And I've got a motorcycle, so it's kind of like flying on two wheels. But no, I really don't. And again, part of that is we purchased a home recently in an expensive part of California, which is already expensive. And so we have a little lack of disposable income for such activities right now. But that is why I recently moved to a bigger airplane in my airline capacity. It was trying to make a little more money. And so who knows, maybe if the podcast continues to grow, maybe I will at that point have the financial means to go do a little flying. And again, if my son wants to, I'll have to figure out a way to do it with him. Jude my Jude my Mal, I'm not sure, asks, is there anything you wanted to accomplish in your career that you haven't, but it would be your dream? Not really, Jude. I've answered something like this before as far as what did I not do in the F-18 or F-16? Well, only two things, shoot somebody down and eject. And from what I understand, I don't really want to do either one of those anyway. So it it would be fun maybe to fly some of the older Warbirds, Spitfires, uh, Mustangs, the Lightning, the P-38, and some of those older aircraft. Maybe it'd be fun to race in the uh, Reno air races or do something along those lines. But again, I have to be realistic. I have three school-aged children at home, two are in high school, and there's only so much time and so many means, resources to do different things like that. So no, I'm actually quite content. Thank you. Uh, Paul reattacks on the UAV thing. He says... 
Do you see a time? Let's see. Do you see a time when a fighting jet will launch a wingman drone off his jet to protect him in a dogfight or as an escort? I think just based on the physics, Paul, that might be tough to launch him off of his aircraft. We do already have two decoys that sort of have this purpose. Um, I think more likely it would be that they launch together as separate aircraft and the thing just stays right there with you all the time, like a well-heeled dog, Uh, whether that'll come or not, I don't know. And then at some point you could have it instead of flying five or 10 feet away from you, no matter what you do, maybe a hundred or 300 feet away and be more of a beacon than you. I I don't know. Uh, That sounds like cool stuff, but from what I understand from our upcoming episode, Nobody's really planning on making that just yet. Uh, Joe D triple seven says, "Do you did you ever do dissimilar air combat training against the Dassault Rafale or Eurofighter Typhoon? If so, how did it go? And what was impressed? What impressed you most about them?" No, unfortunately, I did not. Paul or Joe, excuse me. I'm sure it would have been very humbling. I hear those are very good aircraft and very capable in a within visual range fight, but. No, never had that opportunity. At Top Gun, when I was there a couple times, the grad 1v1, as they call it, is a big fun exercise where everybody shows up in the room. No matter what you fly, you have a big brief for everybody, and they go over all the training rules, and then they hand out envelopes, and you show up at a certain spot of the range at a certain time, at a certain altitude, on a certain frequency, and you fight whoever's there. And in doing that, I was once able to fight an F-5, an F-16, a T-45, which was a lot of fun, and a tornado. And so all those times was a lot of fun, but never had a chance to fight anything real exotic like an F-22 or F-35. The F-35 was just coming out when I retired, or any of the foreign aircraft, or the A-10, as we talked about before. So no, never had a chance to do that. Let's see. Space Dreams. What was it like flying the F-16? And have you ever done a display or fly past? Uh, it was fantastic, Space Dreams. And no, I never had a chance to do a fly past or demo. But the visibility in that, plus, you know, in an F-18, you have the canopy bow right here. It does occlude part of your vision. In the F-16, it's all just one clamshell that comes down. And you have this wonderful view in front of you. And the way you're sitting you're up in front of the aircraft and you just got this wonderful field of view. You feel literally like you're on the tip of a rocket and you're just being hurled through space. And it's a wonderful feeling. And I did have one over Mach 1.9 one time. We don't take them up. Uh, the Navy doesn't as high as they once did. I think they used to go up to 60, 70,000 feet, but due to environmental control system problems they've had recently, they're now limited into the, mid thirties, I want to say 30,000 feet range. So, uh, but just flying fast and flying an F-16 was a lot of fun. So I have respect for people who spend their entire careers flying the fighting Falcon. Richard Edwards, dude, F-35, what do you know about it? Does it beat everything else out there? So Richard, you're going to need to listen to the episode coming up on January 12th on the fighter pilot podcast called fourth versus fifth generation fighters. And our guest will talk about the F 35. So I'm going to punt on that one and uh, he'll talk a little bit about it on that note though. We are starting soon a series on the podcast 
where every episode will have a different featured aircraft. For example, tomorrow we're recording, of course, the F-18 first. And I have other aircraft lined up. I've got a guest ready to talk about the A-7 Corsair. I have a guest lined up to talk about the SR-71. And so for each aircraft, we will ask the same six or seven questions. What was it designed to do? What does it do well? What armament does it carry? What are the different variants, et cetera? And then we'll have a chance for the guest to answer some maybe extra questions or tell some sea stories. And so you'll have to wait on that one. We will uh, we'll get to the F-35 as part of that series, hopefully very soon. Uh, so Henzi Dent said, would you go flying in the F-16 or F-18 if your mission data card failed and you couldn't load the flight plan? It depended on the aircraft, Hansi. Sometimes you had to have it for the radar to know how to do what it needed to do. And other times it was a mild inconvenience and you could type in what you needed. So yes, for the most part in my career, if the card didn't work, you could still go flying. And with some rare exceptions, certain systems would uh, limit you from doing that. I'm getting a reminder that I have about 15 minutes late left. So we'll keep going up until the last minute though. Adrian Edwards, do you suffer many holdovers, i.e. waiting in between the courses on the way through the fast jet pipeline? It, it comes and goes, Adrian. The example I sometimes use is shark fish populations or any predator prey population example, where when there's too many of one, let's say too many prey, then what happens? Well, the predators can all overproduce and multiply because there's so much food. But when there's so many predators, then they eat all the prey and there's not enough food. So some of them die off. So you end up with this accordion effect. And it's the same thing in flight school. At least it was when I went through. Sometimes they're rushing people through. Other times there's these delays and it takes time to get through. So it just comes and goes. And I can't really say much more than that. Uh, I know the process of getting a call sign, but tell the others how one gets a call sign. It's a funny process. For sure, Romper 86, you show up in flight training as a student and they'll give you something to call you just for fun, or you might even give yourself one, but it usually doesn't stick. Once you get to your first squadron, at least in the Navy, this is my experience, you show up and depending on many things, your name, number one, a recent funny movie, number two, or something you look like or someone you look like, or gosh, what else is there? Something maybe you've done either right when you checked in or before you checked in or within the first month or two of checking into your squadron, that will dictate what they call you. So in my case, I showed up looking a little bit Italian, I guess, which I am half Italian. And so they started calling me Chachi. And then at one point, Aiello, Jello, Aiello, it just had a good ring to it. So that's what they called me. Uh, thankfully, my call sign crack from flight school, which was based on a momentary indiscretion at a party with a pair of ill-fitting pants. <clears throat> I'll leave it at that. Uh, that didn't stick. And neither did putting the wrong type of fuel in our rental car in Amsterdam. So I didn't end up as diesel or anything else. Uh, enough on that. And so it just depends. Some guys get one because of silly things they do, whether it's on Liberty or in the airplane. Others just because a movie comes out and the movie Farva, uh, sorry, the movie um, Super Troopers. Well, then Farva is an easy one to give someone because when you drink too much or have a certain resemblance to the character 
or just are a little uncouth, maybe that is an easy call sign to get. And I had two guests on the show, both in the same generation, came into the Navy, at least into their squadrons, about the time that movie came out. And so that was the call sign they ended up with. All right. I appreciate, by the way, all the people saying thank you and love it and all that. I, I appreciate that. For the interest of time, I won't read all those comments because I don't want to sit here and stroke my own ego. Uh, I saw a video recently that showed pilots falling asleep after a mission. Is that a thing? Sure, as long as you're safe on deck, not in the airplane. I uh, don't know of too many people who have fallen asleep in the airplane. Um, that being said, I have a picture of me looking like I'm asleep in the airplane, but it was staged. And uh, in, in another one I have that looks like I'm asleep was taken from the guy next to me on the flight deck of the carrier. We were waiting for the launch, and I had 15 minutes. So I just looked a little bit like, okay, this is boring, but I wasn't asleep. All right, Mobius, um, all-time favorite airplane. Depends, you know, uh, from what point of view. I used to love the SR-71 as a kid. thing was awesome, and it was taboo. You couldn't hear about it hardly. And then we used to love the F-5 because my brothers and I built models of it. And then I started flying, and it wasn't quite as capable. No ill will intended to my F-5 friends, but... It was relatively easy in a dogfight, so it lost a little of its luster for me, but still a fun-looking little airplane. F-18 is probably my go-to favorite because that is where I spent the majority of my career, although I do have an affinity for the A-10 with its huge gun and the F-16 since I had a chance to fly it a little bit. So I'm going to punt on that one, or, or I guess I'll say F-18. Jello, if not classified, well, you, you don't have to say that because if it is classified, I'm just not going to answer. But anyway, what sort of targets would you expect to engage with the M61A2 gun? Ever shoot up tanks, APCs, or was it strictly air-to-air -air or soft skin stuff? Cheers from James. Uh, targets for the gun in the air-to-air -air or other aircraft or anything you need to shoot down, really, because if it flies, it's generally soft enough, if you will, that it will be affected by... 20 millimeter bullets impacting it on the ground. You won't have quite as much impact on heavily armored vehicles or buildings, uh, soft skinned vehicles, aircraft troops in the open. All those are fair game. And no, I never strafed any targets in anger. Certainly did plenty in training. And so, nope, didn't have a chance to do that. Uh, Daniel McAfee asks, have I ever had a chance to uh, train with the Royal Canadian Air Force? If so, do you know Rose? He's a friend of mine. Uh, thanks, Daniel. No, I don't know Rose. My training with other countries was limited to joint exercises. I never had a chance to go to Maple Flag, but I did have a chance to just rub elbows with different pilots at different – for example, if they came and did exchange tours with the U.S. or if we met – in various headquarters, like in Al-Udeed, in the Arabian Gulf area, uh, Qatar specifically. So, uh, no, my experiences with other militaries were fairly limited, but for the most part, I found they were all very professional. We're all, I think, cut from the same cloth, just from different countries. What's considered a good pilot amongst fighter pilots? Charles Howard, that might be one of the best questions I've had in a long time. Thank you. Not to say everyone else's questions are bad, but that is a really thought-provoking question. And I would say what is considered a good pilot is a couple things. I'll just ramble them off in no particular order. Situational awareness. 
is a big one. Knowing where you are compared to where your body thinks you are and what is happening around you. That's a big one. Number two, motor skills. Your ability to finally control something like the stick and throttle and to do it with such precise inputs that you are very effective at whatever it is you're doing, whether it's bombing a target or landing on the carrier. Having a healthy level of confidence, but not an ego or arrogance. Being teachable, being able to teach without coming across as arrogant. And being approachable by young people who want to aspire to this. Thinking about others and not necessarily not thinking too much about yourself. Again, some confidence is required in your skills, but maybe putting others before yourself, being willing to lend a hand when something needs to be done and not thinking anyone or anything is below you because the 18, 19 year old plane captain who is getting your aircraft ready, well, you might think that you're above that person, but if they don't do their job, you can't do yours. So having a respect for your fellow humans, having a respect for the enemy, being a studious person who studies, whether it's your own aircraft or the enemy's aircraft. And I could probably go on and on, but those are definitely, I would say, some traits of a good fighter pilot. All right, we're running out of time. I'll try to get through some of the rest of these very quickly. Ever thought about writing your flying autobiography? There's a large market for such memoirs. You know, Adam, I have started thinking about that. If I do it, I want to make sure that it's not just me saying, hey, look, then I flew this and then I did that. And wow, it was cool. And aren't you jealous? I would like to have a point to it. And I am kicking around some ideas. I do have a Captain Miller story in me I haven't shared with everyone yet. And what I mean by that is if you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan, part of the movie is that they don't know what Captain Miller was back home. And he waits until a certain time to tell everybody that he was a teacher. And I don't think I could recreate quite the drama there, but there's there's one thing that I haven't shared yet that someday when I do, I hope I can use it as an example to continue to fight for something and to persevere through challenges and setbacks. And so if I do it, I might use that as the theme to try to inspire or motivate people, but we'll see. All right. Can RAF pilots take part in Top Gun? If so, can they stay on to become an instructor? I don't think so yet, Paul. I think they're working on that. There are certain higher level classifications that occur at Top Gun with some of the training they do that, as I understand, is still U.S. only, but I'm not totally sure. I know when I talked to my buddy Grand, who used to be the boss over there at Top Gun, he said they were looking at it and they were trying to get a couple first instructors in from, I want to say maybe Australia for starters, but possibly Canada too. I'm not sure. So I think they're working on that. Uh, So Romper86 says he had the opportunity to fly, I assume he, a P-51 with his great uncle still living, who was a Tuskegee Airman and some actual stick time. Well, I am jealous. So thanks for that. And uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. All right, so this is, I guess, as good a one as any. Tim Sears asks, have you ever departed from normal flight? Yes, I did, Tim. I was in a dogfight in an offensive position on my skipper, actually, the commanding officer of Top Gun at the time. He was practicing his defensive. I was practicing offensive. And he did what we call a ditch, which is when, and I've got to get the fighter pilot hands out, everybody, but when you have one aircraft that is defensive and 
if he just stays defensive, he's going to get shot. And so what does he do? He redefines the fight straight down. And what I did is I rolled on top to follow, and I must have had some forces, side forces building up. And instead of following him down, the aircraft literally rolled up and yawed away 180 degrees. And it was quite uh, thrilling, to say the least. And so I simply released the controls. I called knock it off right away. And by the time I released the controls and took a deep breath or two, the aircraft quickly came out of it. And I was able to fly away just fine. That is why we do dogfighting up at high altitude. But I did not end up in any sort of spin or prolonged departure. But, yes, that definitely did get my attention. So I want to say thank you to everybody for the excellent questions. Mike, I'll go mute here and uh, turn it over to you to wrap up. Yeah, well, perfect. Uh, well, obviously, I hope you all enjoyed uh, having Vincent uh, or Jello, as he's called. And uh, it's been brilliant to have him on. Uh, we've had uh, such a great turnout. And, um, yeah, Vincent, if you can get back on quickly and just tell us, you know, where we can find you online for our viewers that have just come on. Um, it'd be great, yeah, you know, where they can find your Fighter Pilot podcast. Okay, so, unfortunately, I end up with this weird looping audio of you, but it sounded like the last thing you said was where people can find me. Uh, the website is fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can look for us on Twitter, YouTube, Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, and we have a newsletter you can sign up for on our website. The favorite podcast player that you use, just look for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And on Patreon, we do have exclusive content, depending on what tier you elect to support us at. And on our YouTube channel, we do some behind-the-scenes type information where we explain what you're seeing in a YouTube video that has military flying in it, generally F-18 stuff because I know it the best. So check it out. Take a look. And thanks very much. I enjoyed this time together. Sorry I didn't answer everyone's questions, but you can always email them to us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.